Hey, and welcome to Foolproof Theology. My name is Chase Davis, and I am your host. I am delighted to be back with you today. Uh, it's been a long month for my family, uh, dealing with a couple of uh, kind of personal issues with uh, my wife's grandfather and other things. Um, but I appreciate all you listeners uh, listening in. And uh, man, it's so much fun to have these conversations uh, with theologians, with with men and and women I want to listen to and learn from. And uh, and I'm delighted to have my guest on today, uh, Dr. Brian Matz. And I'll give a quick bio on on Brian in this episode. What we're going to talk about is public theology, Herman Bovink. Uh, he is a premier, if not the premier theologian on uh, Herman Bovink. And uh, Brian Matson, he's a theologian, writer, and speaker, uh, has his Bachelor of Arts from Montana State University in Billings, uh, Master of Arts in Religion from Westminster Theological Seminary, that's in Philadelphia, and a PhD in Systematic Theology from the University of Aberdeen over in Scotland. Right now, he serves as the Senior Scholar of Public Theology for the Center for Cultural Leadership. You may recognize that uh, from Andrew Sandlin, an episode I did with him. They're connected in that organization. And then he's also the an adjunct professor of systematic and public theology at Westminster Theological Seminary. He lives in Billings, Montana, so it's always great to have another friend from the mountains. Uh, and he lives up there with his wife and daughters where he uh, likes to fly fish at every opportunity, dabbles in music and all sorts of stuff. Uh, kind of a renaissance man is what I'm taking it here, Brian. Welcome to the show. I'm glad you're here. Well, thanks for having me, Chase. It's great to be here. Yeah, Renaissance man. Well, I have to. I, I do have to correct. That was a very, very kind introduction. But uh, premier expert on Herman Bovink is probably uh, speaking a little too highly. I am. I am a, a, a small part of a of a pretty small club of Bovink aficionados. Uh, but there are others who have uh, reached greater heights of expertise. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Love the humility. Um, well, let's just dive right into that topic. So today, you know, we're talking about uh, a variety of issues and we'll end up talking about, you know, public theology and that kind of thing. Um, but let's talk Bovink. That was who you did your dissertation on, right? That's correct. Yep. I, I did wrote my thesis on Herman Bovink's, uh, really his theological anthropology in his Reformed dogmatics. And uh, it was a really opportune time to get into uh, studying Bavink because uh, he hadn't been translated, you know, for about a hundred years. And then at the turn of this, of this century, uh, his dogmatics started coming out in English and I caught the, the very tip of the wave of interest uh, in Bavink. In fact, I think mine was the first um, published monograph on Bavink uh, after the, tr after he appeared in English. Um, so it was uh, it was wonderful to to study Bavink, and I did that in in Scotland. Uh, we lived in Aberdeen for three years as I worked on that project. That's awesome. And what what kind of piqued your interest in that? Is you kind of uh, you know was it more like I want to study Bavink, therefore I'm going to get a PhD, or I want a PhD? Who could <clears> I study? Bavink seems to be you know at the cusp of interest. How did you just how did you decide to go after Bavink? Well, it, it was actually very providential. I, I had not intended to to study Bavink uh, when I went to Aberdeen. Um, I had read a little bit of Bavink while I was in seminary at Westminster Seminary. I think we had used there had been a portion of his Doctrine of God that had been published as a as an independent volume, and we had <clears throat> been reading that I think in our Doctrine of God class. Um, but I never really took to it. I, I in, in in terms of intense interest, I thought it, you know it was pretty good, and I was going to go uh, 
uh, work on something completely different in in Aberdeen. But as I uh, over the course of my first year worked with my supervisor to home home in on what my topic was really going to be, it was actually my supervisor who encouraged me. Hey, have you have you looked at at Bobbing's dogmatics on that particular topic or issue? And I looked at him and I thought, you know what, I haven't. So I went and I opened up Bobbing. And frankly, I just stumbled on my topic. It was providential. I literally found there was one particular quote in mm. his, his section on the doctrine of man. It was it was relating to the covenant of works, but he he had one particular quote jumped out at me and I thought, huh, that's interesting. Why does he say that? What's the connection? between this and this and this. And it ended up being a little portal into uh, Bavink's entire theology. Um, wow. So I'm grateful for my supervisor, Don Wood, for uh, suggesting that I go read Bavink um, because that was the means God used to really get me into my topic and, and help help uh, focus, focus me for that that's project. A, that's awesome. Was theological anthropology kind of that the the thing that you're kind of examining, exploring, and and you were interested in already, uh, what, would you say that was the topic you were interested in? I was very interested in that topic. I, I come from um, I'm, I'm I'm a Westminsterian um, theologically, and and what I mean by that is I was very very influenced and impacted in seminary uh, by Professor Richard Gaffin and uh, his his uh, teaching on Paul's theology. And so much of Paul's theology, of course, is is Christ as the second and last Adam, the Adam-Christ uh, connection. And and really, when we're talking about Adam as the image and likeness of God and Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, we're talking about theological anthropology. What is man? What's the nature of man? Mm. Um, but more importantly, in terms of my thesis, what's the destiny of man? What's his, what's the purpose of man? What is what is man's eschatology? So I'd all always been very interested in that topic, but what happened is that I got caught up in a fad. <clears throat> I'm so glad the Lord uh, led me in a different direction because when I went to Aberdeen. Um, you might re- you might remember this. This would be the the mid two thousands. All the rage was uh, postmodernism mm. and postmodern philosophy. And you know, is postmodernism good? Is it bad? Is it a danger to the church? Um, and I had intended to to do PhD work on the postmodern question, um, and 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 kind of evaluate it from a from a reformed theological outlook. Uh, I'm so glad that I got led away from that because that whole thing kind of turned out to be a fad. It di- it's disappeared. Like those are not the pressing questions now in the church. I mean, obviously they're re- they're there. It's an underlying issue with the the kind of epist- epistemic relativism of our culture and so forth. But right. it's not a hot button issue. People are no longer having conferences on postmodernism. You know, so had I gone that direction, I I just don't think that. It would have been as fruitful as as my work otherwise ended up being because I got kind of veered away from it. That's great. That's really really fun. I especially love hearing and being reminded of God's providence, particularly in your uh, career and your studies. Um, that's great to hear. Now, one thing with Bavink is he, uh, I mean, he's known as far as I can tell, and as far as I think you've represented as kind of a public theologian. Um, 
So I guess, you know, it might be helpful. People are listening and they're going, you know, at this point, they're like, they're, they're saying a lot of this, this weird last name, Bobbing. I don't even know who that is. Um, and so could you give kind of the listeners kind of a brief kind of overview of who Herman Bovink is? Yeah, sure. Or, or Herman Bovnik as, 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 uh, as newbies often say, they, <laughs> they can't say his name. So they're, or they're like Bavink. Yeah, his, it's weird. <laughs> yeah. Herman Bovink, uh, is a, is a Dutch theologian, uh, a 19th century Dutch theologian. A lot of people, um, a little bit of confusion. A lot of times people will call him a 20th century theologian um, because he did live into the 20th century. He died in 1921. But most of his systematic theology, his dogmatic work, was done in the 19th century. And, um, you know, it's my view he should be classified as a 19th century theologian. And that's just important because typically when you're talking about 20th century theology, you're talking about theologians who were interacting with Karl Barth. Barth looms over 20th century theology, and he had a very, very unique approach and method to theology. And Bavink never interacted with that um, in any direct way. So he mm. really is a theologian who kind of belongs to that previous century. Although that's not to say that Bavink didn't anticipate the directions that, that Barth had taken. Bavink always remains very relevant. Uh, even to the 21st century, as we'll probably talk about. But Bavink was uh, closely associated with Abraham Kuyper, who's probably a name that your your listeners are, are more used to hearing or more familiar with. Kuyper was a, you talk about Renaissance man, Kuyper was a, the true Renaissance man. He was a theologian, uh, a pastor, a churchman. He founded a, a university a church denomination, a political party, and served as the prime minister of Holland for uh, for a term. Oh, he started a newspaper. I mean, this guy had his hands in everything because he had a movement, and his movement was called neo-Calvinism. And that that whole idea of neo-Calvinism is uh, to press the claims of Christ into every square inch of human. Mm-hmm. Distance, that the kingdom of God and the gospel of Christ has implications for every area of life, that, that uh, Christianity is not uh, segregated to sw- one small uh, realm, just the church or the family, uh, but rather it has implications for all of society. So that's the neo-Calvinist program. And uh, Herman Bobbink became uh, closely associated with that. Uh, with Kuiper. As a matter of fact, the second half of Bavink's career, he moved from the theological school in Kampen to the Free University of Amsterdam, where Kuiper was, and then taught another 20 years at the Free University. So they were closely linked, um, but but not joined at the hip. They actually had had tensions and disagreements like, like any uh, working collaborative pair of people might have, but they were on board with the neo-Calvinist program, and Bavink really as it's become, as it has emerged to our consciousness now that Bavink is being translated into English, finally, we're realizing that Bavink was really the true theologian of the movement. Kuiper was the the uh, kind of the promotional guy, <laughs> but underneath underneath and behind Kuiper was uh, truly outstanding, remarkable theological work being done by Bavink. Bavink was, was didn't like the limelight so much. Mm. He was 
Kent. He was more mild mannered than than Kuiper. Um, so, and he was also Kuiper had sharp edges. He was very polemical, and Bavink, by contrast, was actually quite ecumenical and more and Catholic in spirit. Bavink is known for his generosity towards people with whom he disagrees. Mm. Uh, he's universally acclaimed and lauded and appreciated for that. That he can completely disagree with somebody and yet uh, critique them in such a way that is so um, learned and respectful. He could repeat somebody's argument in such a way that they would say, yes, yes, that's, that's what I believe. And then he could dismantle it. But he understood people before, before the critique. So that's kind of the, the gist of Bob. He, he died in 1921. Um, just a few months after Kuiper, as a matter of fact, oh, and, wow. and just a few months pri- uh, before B.B. Warfield. So within the span of, I think, six months, we lost Abraham Kuiper, Herman Bovink, and B.B. Warfield. And that, wow. That's, that's amazing. What were, just because I'm curious, like when you mentioned some of the tensions in the working relationship, I really like that. Uh, it's not a topic I'd planned to discuss, but the reason I like it is because I think a lot of times we we kind of elevate theologians or people in church history, and it's it's inevitable when you do church history. There's characters that rise to the to the forefront, but we often forget they lived in community. Then uh, there's a great work I read on Calvin and his company of pastors, where there was a whole collective and cohort of of pastor theologians who were doing great work, um, and you see their their personal disagreements, their temperaments come out and. And so it's a really enriching way to study history, to look at who was shaping who, who was interacting with who. So with with him and Kuiper, though, uh, if there was like one example you can think of where they might have had a disagreement, what, I mean, obviously you mentioned maybe their, their way they approach things with polemics or anything like that, but uh, could you tell me more about that? Yeah, that's part of it. Uh, Kuiper sometimes thought that Bavink was too soft on on their opponents. <laughs> he didn't like, you know, you're too, you're too nice, you know. But they actually had some some substantive theological disagreements. Kuiper Kuiper got into some weird stuff on uh, eternal justification, <laughs> and uh, and Bavink I think was resistant to that. Bavink was kind of res- uh, he didn't like uh, the way Kuiper the way that Kuiper was articulating uh, infant baptism and, and baptismal regeneration. Uh, Kuiper, Kuiper got pretty speculative on that topic and, and Bavink kind of shied away from that. So there were just, there were some, some things like that, but I'm, I'm glad you brought up the idea of being in community. It's so easy to forget that these are flesh and blood human beings and the messiness of, of reality, the messiness of life. Um, there, these, these, these gentlemen, um, you know, they were not living in some ideal Platonic realm, uh, <laughs> detached from reality. If you really look into the history, I mean, they were dealing with conflict a lot, uh, heartache, uh, betrayal, uh, being disappointed, let down. They're, they live full lives. And so, actually, just since you bring it up, I'm going to just reach over and grab it real quick. Yeah, do it. So if, if people really are interested in in Bavink and his life and kind of who he was, this this biography um, by James uh, Eglinton. James James and I uh, overlapped when we were uh, both studying. He was in Edinburgh. I was in Aberdeen studying Bavink. We were the only two people studying Bavink in the United Kingdom. That's great. Uh, for a time. So it was fun. James is uniquely, uniquely gifted to write this book. 
um, about Bavink. But this is where you'll get all of the insight about his relationship to Kuiper, uh, kind of the messiness of, of, of life and how this theology that he produced emerged. And, you know, it's not enough. Theology is not just free floating. Theology was done by somebody. It was done by somebody in a context. And so getting into that context um, is so illuminating. You know, we don't have the, you know what? Here's a little teaser, a little teaser for, for your audience. Uh, we don't have Bob Inks, We probably don't get Bob Inks four volume reformed dogmatics uh, if, if he didn't get jilted um, as a young man. Mm. <laughs> he didn't, he didn't, I don't, it's not clear that he got jilted by the girl, but the girl's dad would not give him permission to marry his daughter. And he, <laughs> so he went off to a pastorate. And then, so basically he had a lot of time on his hands in his twenties to devote himself to study mm. because he was single. And, uh, we know from his diaries, he was single and he was lonely. So he devoted himself to, to, to theology and study. So there, there's an example of real life, you know, is involved in, in doing this kind of work. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was quite a, a heartbreak. In, in Holland at the time, it was against the law. You could only ask a father for permission to marry their daughters uh, three times. And if you didn't get a yes answer, it was Ill illegal for you to ask again. This is an actual law. Amazing. Yeah. So you didn't go back. If he said no, you didn't go back the next week and ask him again. Right. You have to go back the next year to ask them again. So this is a long-term process. Oh, my gosh. So uh, it ended up turning out all right. Bavink did get married to a, a much more, actually probably a more suitable, more suitable part, life partner. Mm. And uh, did have a very happy family life after that. But we're just... I don't know what this is apropos of, but I'm just having fun talking about Bob and Coke. No, that is, I, I love that kind of stuff because even in my own um, kind of theological pursuits, I'll put it that way, you know, uh, part of maturity is learning why you do what you do and how you do what you do. And a lot of us as Christians, we like to glaze over why we do what we do as if like everything has been baptized, you know, especially if we do it in the church, like, well, I want to serve because I want to honor God. And it's like, that's probably true in some respect. And it's also probably true. You might want to do it for other reasons. We're very right. complex creatures. And so for even my pursuit of whether it's degrees or competency, I know a lot of that for me is because I felt really stupid as a young man, you know, people around me made me feel stupid. And there was this kind of sense of like, I don't want to feel that way. I don't, right. I want to feel competent and church planning for me, what that, that made me face that wound pretty hard on because you're going to feel stupid just just not knowing what you're doing. And, uh, and so thankfully God has refined that, but, but that kind of stuff really does shape people. Um, and we often forget that we just kind of like to put people in, uh, kind of like these, these chambers of like where they weren't affected by their context, where they were impermeable creatures of perfection, where no one could like impact how they did theology, how they thought about the world. Um, and so we all have a story and that story invariably shapes how we do theology. Uh, the problem is a lot of people just don't know that. And so that's why I like studying history. So I really yeah. appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, we, we, we oftentimes think that our theology just drops drops down out of heaven and, and, and lands on the <laughs> with a thud on the table. And we go, oh, there it is. Well, no. Yeah, it's so true. Bobbing, you know, the whole, the whole neo-Calvinist movement, Bobbing's own history is um, 
that he was part of a persecuted, his whole family came from a, a, a marginalized, persecuted um, splinter group, mm. theologically, church group. Uh, but then a, a, there was a religious toleration act that happened in, in, in the 1840s. And suddenly uh, his group had new opportunities in the modern world where the, the opportunities that had been closed to them before. And so he, he is self-consciously moving into uh, the modern world, uh, having been marginalized and realizing there are opportunities um, for, for the gospel. And, and then he's confronted with the question of how does Christianity fit with contemporary modern society, this new world he found himself in? And so just think about that biography and then think about the theological work he did. His whole life was devoted to exploring the relationship between Christianity and culture. Um, should we huddle up in our little enclave like a lot of his, you know, church people thought they ought to do? Right. We got to hide away from the world. Or should we be modern and progressive and liberal and become worldly? Mm. And lose the distinctiveness of Christianity, right? Those are the two pressures that he found himself in, either world escape or world embrace. And so he's constantly wrestling with this. How do we maintain the particular absolute character of Christianity and our confession and our faith um, and yet not retreat from the world, but to engage the world fruitfully for the kingdom of God and the gospel. That's what, and, and so that's the program. And, but you see how that emerges from a personal experience, a personal context uh, in which in which he lived. Absolutely, and I love hearing about that, especially because it's pre-Nyberg, and because Nyberg's kind of uh, paradigm it looms large. To use a phrase you used, um, over kind of the way we think about how we engage culture. I love studying people who kind of came before that. Because to me, that can get a bit pedantic. It can get just like too simplistic of a way, even though, you know, that can be a useful exercise. Um, I just think it maybe has those treads have been worn too, too long. Um, and so that's Possibly. why I'm going to talk about it. Um, yeah, that's, it's, I think it's a helpful, I think neighbor's still pretty helpful. Um, uh, but I think Bobbing's actually more helpful. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about that because. Um, we're going to use a phrase and I, it's the first time we've used it on this podcast. Um, it's actually a phrase that's really interesting to me, public theology. And the reason it's interesting is because, um, it's actually, some people use it as a term of derision. Um, at least on the interwebs, they say, you know, what are you a public the theologian? And, and everyone likes to think themselves a public theologian if they have a Twitter account, you know, I'm doing theology publicly. And so now I'm a public theologian. Um, but then you get people like Bob Inc and Kuiper and other people th throughout church history who are very public with the theology. So if you were trying to give kind of a synopsis uh, for me and for, for the listeners of what, what public theology is, how, would, how might you describe it? Describe it as doing theology um, with a view uh, toward doing theology outside of the church. So a lot of theology, most of our theology is theology that's done uh, with the church, with the saints as the primary audience. It's for the edification, the building up of, of, of the church, uh, pressing toward the unity of faith that, that, that Paul talks about in, in Ephesians 4. 
Uh, public theology is a theologian who simply turns around. And now he's doing theology, and but it's being broadcast to the, the, the watching world. It's to the marketplace, right? Instead of, so it's, it, 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 there's, a, there's a difference in audience. So it's it's not it's not exclusively. I'm not saying that it's not for Christians, but it's not exclusively for Christians. It's doing theology uh, in a way that's going to connect to um, those who are outside of the church, those who are not believers, um, to society at large. And so that so the audience is the first thing, but the subject matter is also uh, quite different because in public theology, you're dealing with issues of public concern. Mm. Um, and issues of public concern are societal and cultural and political and economic um, aesthetic concerns. Uh, it, it's a wide range of, of topics that, that your theology is engaging with. So it's audience and subject matter um, is, it would be the essential characteristics of a public theology. So okay. how does God's word speak to and apply to matters of public concern. Okay. Did Bavink understand himself or use the phrase public theology or public theologian to describe himself at all? I don't, I don't, you know, I don't think he did um, use that phrase. Um, But he most certainly thought that theology should be public. Now, let me just, let me let me explain why I say that. Um, Bobink was involved in a lifelong struggle over the place of theology in the academy. Mm. So there was a very very strong controversy in his context, the 19th century Dutch context, where um, many people thought that theology is only for and exclusively for the church. Therefore. Only the seminary should have a theology department. Mm. Okay. Kuiper, when he founded the Free University of Amsterdam, had a very different idea. He thought that theology belonged in a public university setting. So there's there's the, the tension, right? Is it seminary or university? And people were constantly trying to pull Bavink into, no, it's the seminary. And Bavink was adamant that theology is public in this way it belongs in the academy right alongside the natural sciences right alongside philosophy right right alongside mathematics and the humanities theology should be a department in the university why why did he think that because he believed that uh god's word is god's public word it's not a private word uh, that God has spoken, and it's our duty to receive this revelation and apply it to the world. So in that little controversy, you can see Bavink's uh, own inclinations were that pu- theology ought to be public. It's it's for everyone. That's really helpful. Thanks for clarifying that. The uh, one thing that interests me is I wonder if, I wonder how, you might categorize evangelicalism as a movement since the mid 20th century with um, Carl F. H. Henry and other people. It seems to me when you describe public theology, and maybe I'm I'm uh, kind of overlapping two things that we shouldn't, but it seems to me when you're describing that, it seems that that movement of evangelicalism trying to break free from fundamentalism um, 
seems to be an act of public theology. How do we represent the faith to the watching world? Is that is that correlative at all, or are, are there some overlaps? Oh, sure. Yeah, I think it is. I, I think it was a move toward public theology. That 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 rejection of uh, sort of pietistic fundamentalism that you know retreated to our little enclaves, our little our little lifeboats, and we're trying to rescue a, a soul here or there into our lifeboats so that you know when the rapture comes, we're we're all out of here. Um, and then that turned toward the public square. And really, I think Francis Schaeffer. Um, is is a big name that can't be forgotten here. Carl Henry certainly, uh, but Francis Schaeffer, um, th- that stuff was was uh, you know high octane uh, fuel uh, at the time he was writing, engaging with uh, with with uh, existentialist philosophers. A Christian guy doing that, like that was that's kind of unheard of in in the evangelical context. Uh, in America, so he he was he would be a, a forerunner, a pioneer of that. So definitely, I think evangelicalism took a turn toward public theology. Now, that um, really is not saying much because then we have to ask what kind of public theology, what was the character of that public theology, um, and we you know, and again, going back to our previous conversation, um, things are messy, mm-hmm. right? And, and you can't look at the you know, the last half century of the 20th century and evangelicalism's engagement with culture and not see a, a lot of messiness in, in terms of the characters and who's doing what and uh, for what reason. You know, by the, en- by the end of that century, you've got guys like Cal Thomas writing a book, Blinded by Might, how the Christian right is, is blinded by their, their lust for political power. And I, I thought that was ludicrous at the time. I thought, you're crazy. Christian right is not just all about power and po- political uh, power. Well, you know, 16 years later, the, he, Cal Thomas got the last laugh because I think um, it turned out that there were large swaths of the Christian right that really were just about getting power. For sure. Uh, and so, yeah, the messiness of it. Yeah, even today that goes on. The uh, the interesting thing with public theology today is one thing that, at least in in kind of my circles, that uh, is is apparently is held out. I'll put it this way: is held out to be of preeminent concern when doing public theology. Is how does this affect our witness? How does this affect if we say that or if we do that? We're harming our witness. Um, what do you make of that? Are you familiar with that conception? And if so, what do you make of that conception? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a complicated issue, right? Um, because, um, we are, we are told, I mean, scripture does tell us that our, our manner matters, right? Um, but there are people, I, I understand that, the, that reaction, there are people who really are naive and they think that if we just uh, speak nicely enough, then the world is going to like us. Right. <laughs> and uh, that's extremely naive. Um, so on the, on the one hand, however, the answer to that is not to not speak nicely. Right. Right. The answer to that is to be wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove and realize we still have to uh, engage ourselves and, and display the fruits of the spirit. 
in our in our public engagement. And I, I don't know about you, Chase. Uh, I see I see a pretty uh, gaping absence of a lot of the fruits of the spirit uh, in our in our uh, cultural conversation today. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self control. You know, those aren't optional. Sure. They're not optional. I mean, Paul says this is this, these are the fruits of the spirit. What are the fruits of the flesh that he talks about that come right before that? Bitterness, malice, rage, jealousy. It's like, you know, so I think as Christians, we ought to really check ourselves as to are we treating the fruits of the spirit as as optional? So I on the one hand, I mean, I, I think we have to that just has to be um axiomatic that that those fruits of the spirit are what we should be uh bearing. Um, before the world. But the, the the key is to not do that in a na- naive way, as though if we do that, then then our witness will um, somehow make unregenerate, rec- recalcitrant hearts um, like us, or the broader culture like us. We have to be realistic. Um, God, God brings the harvest, right? Um, so we need to do our public theology uh, in humility, bearing the fruits of the Spirit, and the results are going to be up to the up to the Lord. Mm, I don't, I, I've, you know, I've forgotten what your question is now, so you'll have to <laughs> remind me. <laughs> no, that so yeah, I was talking about harming our witness, and uh, a word typically goes a- along with that that I, I use for a long time. I still think you can use it. My friends always make fun of me because I think it's anathema now around them. Uh, and that word is winsome. You know, we need to have a winsome public engagement. And, you know, yes, I agree. Like, I agree. Also, uh, that tactic is a tactic. And I think we need to be not just winsome, but willing to suffer the consequences uh, when we just speak plainly about matters of human sexuality, gender, God's word, and marriage. You know, all these things, like, we can, we can dole it all up as much as we want. Um, and I, I wonder how much of that goes back to that tension every generation wrestles with of Christianity, like you talked about with Bob Inc. and Kuiper, um, because because uh, yeah, it is a it's an interesting thing. You know, liberalism, kind of the age, the modern age liberalism, tends to appreciate a more moderate discourse, um, such that there's not a lot of room for polemics. Polemics are typically seen as, you know, uh, not not that refined you know or beneath kind of the the academic way of discussing things and part of me just is curious to know like or or to think uh, something i've been thinking about is how much of that is just like a symptom of the problem where we just can't be honest with what we're thinking and offer very critical incisive defenses that doesn't mean i dehumanize you right um but but it does mean you know how much how much of this, yes, fruit of the Spirit, I love what you're saying, and I agree, of course, it's it's the Bible. So we're going to submit our lives to the standard of the Word of God. Also, um, you know, I just, uh, it's just a, it's a curious thing that I, I've been wrestling with, for, especially for the last two years, since I I came out of kind of this very, this naive land, where if I was winsome enough, I could, you know, that would be the kind of the key to seeing more people saved. And there's certain relationships you need to be more sensitive. You could say more, uh, more aware of pitfalls relationally and conversationally. But I wonder how much of our Christian witness is bound by standards that 
that really are subjected to some kind of modern age where uh, uh sure. where it's ineffective i don't do you have any thoughts on that oh man uh, how long you got <laughs> <laughs> you're raising a whole lot of really really important issues I, let me just go back to i um um by saying bearing the fruits of the spirit and all of that um i am not at all denying that there are uh, a wide variety of types of speech and a wide variety of contexts, right? Um, about what what kind of speech would be appropriate here? Should I just be blunt here, or should I should I soften my language here? But you know what that takes, Chase. I mean, this is the problem. I think with maybe it's just a problem with humans more generally, but but also Christians is we we want life to be like a checklist, right? Mm. Like just uh, you know. Everything's got to fit neat, neatly into a box, right? That is not what 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 life is about. What what life is about is maturity, mm. right? Paul is constantly praying for the believers in the churches that he's planted to be mature, to grow up into maturity. And what well, what is maturity? Maturity is being a, a person of substance, a person of character, a person who, who bears those fruits of the Spirit. And it is the mature person, the wise person, that then takes God's Word and he applies it in these various circumstances, in these various places. And he speaks the apt word at the right time. That apt word at the right time is not going to come by looking at your checklist, it's going to come out flow out of your out of your character. Mm. What we have um, right now is a, a complete crisis in lack of maturity. Mm. Even on Twitter, just look at look at Christian Twitter. We we don't we don't have a lot of maturity. We have a lot of immaturity. And so then I think that when we when we're dealing with um, an immature context. This is this is where things kind of break down. You mm. got th- this. This relates very much to the David French Sorab Amari fight that happened a couple of years ago, right? Yeah. David French is kind of a pansy, and he just wants to be nice. And the left is just going to roll over us and destroy us all because David French thinks that we should be nice and have the fruits of the spirit. And then you get Sorab comes along and says, enough of that. We're going to punch back twice as hard and fight fire with fire. And we don't have the luxury of things like the fruits of the spirit. I mean, he almost... He almost <laughs> <laughs> in his first things article right yeah yeah so it's interesting at this overlap right yeah that really is a divide and i think it's an unnecessary divide and i think it's a divide that is largely a symptom of immaturity mm-hmm. um i truly mature people um can realize um that we can be uh we can um bear the fruits of the spirit uh in a bold and effective way that that's the only way forward here, right? Why? Because we just said, well, this is in the Bible. This is how we're supposed to conduct ourselves, right? And we need to speak the truth to the world and do public theology. Well, what's the conclusion here? That these two things are not opposed to one another. Right. That's that's the third way. And that's going to take wisdom. It's, it's not something you're going to read in a book, you know, oh, here are the five things you need to do to for an effective witness. That comes from people who are really deeply formed and shaped um, by God's word, and they have wisdom. Mm. And how do we get wisdom? What does James say? James 
uh, uh, said. He said, uh, if anyone lacks wisdom, ask God. Right. right. Yep. That's great. Uh, yeah. You asked me, do I have any thoughts? Well, I had, I had thoughts. I also think, by the way, there a lot of this has to do with um, with socioeconomic class. Okay. You were talking about kind of the 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 kind of uh, academic modes of discourse. Um, that's sort of an elite mode of liberal discourse. I think there's a divide there between that and and the you know the blue collar type of straightforward straightforward no BS kind of kind of discourse. Um, so that's again that's part of our cultural context as well that that we have to wrestle through. And then, no, it's too much to get into. I'm boring all of you. No, you can go. Because this stuff is like what I'm talking about with my friends. Um, it's the stuff I get criticized for based on my interactions on Twitter. Something that, you said really, something that you said really did resonate with me, and that is be honest. Why can't we all just be honest about what we think? Well, that, that is, um, that's a topic that very much interests me, um, and that is um, our our um, secular discourse um, that everybody is supposed to hide their deepest um, commitments. Right. And we're supposed to gussy it all up with a bunch of neutral sounding uh, language and, but smuggle in our worldview underneath, you know, all of this verbiage. I'm very much against that. I'm, I'm with you there. I think that our secular, uh, secular discourse would be vastly improved if everybody just put their if if while we're gathered around the table in the public sphere in the public square, it would be so much better if we would all just lay our cards on the table and say, "Oh, this is what I believe um, in in the core of my being. I believe the Bible is the Word of God. I think that this you know this is what we I believe Jesus is the King. He's the one that we must submit to. Um, why can't I say that in the public square? Um, we should say that in the public square. That Christos Kurios right. is the is the basic fundamental Christian proclamation. We should, um, and then we need to call out the fact that um, our our op opponents, the people sitting on the other side of the table, they also have their deepest um, uh, convictions. They they also are very religious people. Remember when Paul walked around Athens? What what is he saying when he finally stands up in the Areopagus? Men of Athens, I've walked around your city and I see, I perceive that you are very religious, right? So all of the the the, the so-called secularists in our society need to be in, you know, uh, made aware that they're actually very, very religious and they have deeply held religious convictions. And it would be better for everybody if we would all stop pretending that you don't and let's then we can have a real conversation. Absolutely. That's what one thing we've always observed about our context in Boulder is that, uh, you know, people like to talk about how it's one of the most least religious cities in America up there with Burlington, Vermont. And uh, and I always joke, you know, we talk about when we're ministering to people, discipling people, preaching. We're like, this is one of the most religious places I've been to. I've been to Sri Lanka where they're Buddhists. I've been to uh, other places where they're Muslim. And I'm like, this is a religious place. You have your own practices on recycling, on dogs, on children, your own beliefs about economics, about the poor. You have these convictions. Nothing helped reveal that more than COVID because all of a sudden people started putting up all these signs, creedal signs in their yards, right. showing 
that they're religious, you know, yeah. and it's like, there, I'm glad in you put our it out house, there. In our house, we believe science. And yeah. We, <laughs> yeah. And then they have, we have flags hanging, uh, flying from city hall and all this kind of stuff. And so I have to teach my children. Those are different. That's a different religion. They're they're and they're taking from our religion uh, and using it for their purposes. Right. Um, and so it's a very interesting way to think about things. But yeah, I really appreciate your candor on that stuff because these are these are questions I wrestle with. You know that as I'm coming coming out of kind of a, a what I sensed was a lot of uh, unnecessary self restraint in terms of being honest, like you said. Uh, because I was so concerned with like, what will people think if I say this? Or what will people think if I say that? Which is a, is a concern. Like right. we don't walk into our homes with our wives and just recklessly run our mouths for a reason, right? right. And and hopefully she does treats me with the same decency because <laughs> we're humans. Um, right. But the danger with public theology is that um, either we can veer, kind of overreact or, or just kind of go flamethrower mode on the internet, you know, and just burn it all down uh or or we just pretend that we're living in some fantasy land where it's like the only good thing public theology is for is to be nice and it's like what what kind of boomer nonsense is that that's craziness um and so uh yeah, that, I, it's a real it's a you're right i mean that's a it's a real struggle i mean i wish i wish that i could come on your podcast and say hey let me give you the one key that's gonna sure. you know solve this question I, I can't. <laughs> right, right. Well, a lot of it has to do with virtue. And I think a lot of um, kind of going back to Bob Inc., a lot of kind of like personal, like going like, hey, like that guy's approaching it differently than I am. I disagree with the tactic he's using, but that's fine. Um, some tactics aren't fine. Uh, but I think a lot of it comes back to kind of like uh, de Tocqueville's critique of America, where it was like, if this society becomes unvirtuous, it's doomed. Like if we don't have people of character and virtue and maturity, then we're done. And I think when, once Bavink and that that symptom there in the Netherlands, where theology got relegated to the seminary, where where all of a sudden kind of this Gnostic approach to theology, where it's, those are matters of 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 the spiritual um, or the sacred, not the secular, and right. then there's that false divide put up. All of a sudden, we have an unvirtuous society that has no idea about eternality, has no idea what to do with their spirituality, their, their innate spirituality. And so we've become so unvirtuous that, um, that it, it, it informs how we do this kind of stuff on public theology. Yeah, that's right. And, 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 you know, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought up um, the virtues and, and brought up Bavink again, right? So Bavink is, is well-respected and renowned as this guy who, um, who really sought to understand the people with whom he disagreed. He tried to understand their motivations. And very often, Bob Inc. will say, there is an element of truth in this, right? So he really did try to put himself in somebody else's shoes and say, why does, you know, why does Schleiermacher say that? Why, mm. why, is that, why is that his take? And he would really try to understand that person and then um, argue with the best version of that person's arguments. Well, what is that? What's that is the cardinal virtue. Um, I would say that that's like that is the virtue of love, right? I mean, Paul, Paul, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a banging, uh, clanging gong, right, <laughs> or a clashing cymbal. I think a lot of our public uh, engagement, a lot of our public theology or uh, engagement, just in in culture and society at large can sound like a clashing symbol 
um, because it's all polemic, it's all antagonistic, and it lacks this quality. And the quality of, of that I'm thinking of is the, the quality of love. Now, what does love mean in this context? I'm talking to a progressive, you know, uh, resident of Boulder, Colorado, right? <laughs> Who has no children but has clothes on their little dogs. Right. Um, right. I'm talking to that person. Um, the way that I can love that person is to understand their worldview, be able to speak to them about their worldview in such a way that they will say, you understand me. You understand okay. the motivations of why I believe what I believe, why I think what I do about economics or the poor or politics or, or this. You understand me first. In other words, you respected and loved me enough to understand me, and then you've engaged with me and you've engaged in a deep, thoughtful way. That's not how we conduct ourselves generally. I'm not talking about you and personally. Sure. We're in attack mode all the time. Oh, you must be a brain-dead lib, and you're a progressive lefty, and blah, blah, blah. And it's all antagonism, and there's no evidence that we've actually attempted to love that person enough to actually communicate with them. So we don't talk to people, we talk we talk at people. Sure. And I'm saying this is one way Bob Inc. can help us, right? That's great. Seeking to understand another person. I think it, maybe we should call that winsomeness, but sure. <laughs> I that word you, is enough. No, you do it. You go for it, bro. Um, <laughs> the I, I want to give you a real two kind of two closing things. Uh, and it's it's uh, an example I, I would love to hear your thoughts on. Because here's what I'm thinking. Um, yesterday or in the last week, I have no idea when the video was recorded. They do these things. I think it's at Oxford where they do like debates and they'll do two people up in front of the room. It almost looks like parliament or something. And they have people representing two different sides. And I was actually really watching a lot of those uh, during 2020 regarding Black Lives Matter and all this kind of stuff, issues of justice. And so those were really interesting dialogues. One recently surfaced. And like I said, I have no idea when it came out. Um, but it's going around on Twitter and you're not on there. Uh, you know, and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, it's going around on Twitter. And what she says is she connects eating meat with the patriarchy, with racism, with colonialism. She says, if you want to eat meat, you're basically it's neo-colonialism and all this kind of stuff. Um, there were other laughs in the in the uh, audience. Now, what you've said, I I agree with. I like when I'm interacting with somebody one on one I, over a cup of coffee or a beer, more likely, I'm going to sit down with them. I want to hear what they have to say. I'm going to try to represent their view. And then if they're if I think they're wrong, I'm going to try to give it a, a, all my gusto to show that they're wrong in a way where I'm not like <laughs> throwing punches literally, you know, but like I'm I'm going to try to dismantle their arguments. My concern is that when like that woman gets up there and talks about how eating meat is colonialism and, and misogyny and just another example of white supremacy and racism, she's all the words, right? She's all the stuff. Yeah. And we're so busy going, tell me more about that. Like, tell me more of where you're coming from that. Like we lose the ability to say that's a ludicrous line of argumentation and it's, it's, uh, it's infecting our, uh, corporations and, and government and the economy and just the way the world works. I, I wonder how much, yes, that, that love that you're talking about, I, that as a Christian, I'm like, yeah, I, I totally agree. That's what I want to have at the same time. Are we allowed to laugh publicly at ludicrous arguments, you know, and, and without, mm -hmm. without dehumanizing somebody, but at the same time, like it's insane. 
it's an insane way to look at the world. So help me understand kind of how those two, without being in conflict or opposed, help me understand. Well, once again, once again, uh, it takes maturity and wisdom, right? Um, to know to know what the context is and what would be an appropriate response. I think at a public a public debate like that, yeah, I I. I I absolutely would have laughed, but that wasn't because I would have consciously thought, should I laugh now? I would right. have been unable to not laugh. <laughs> right. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, you know, and I don't know if, if I were the debater, I, yeah, I mean, you, you would have to say something firm, you know, you'd have to say, look, I understand you learned a lot of really fancy words and a lot of verbiage, but there was literally nothing linking those things together, right? You yeah. just bunch of that was a word salad that didn't mean anything right and i think you, you can say that um we have lost i mean or, or perhaps you could say i would say something like well um it appears that my opponent not only thinks that eating meat is colonialism and part of the patriarchy and misogyny but also they apparently think that rational thought <laughs> is colonialism and <laughs> you know i say something like that I, I, that's i think there's a place for that i'm not i'm not okay. saying that that's inappropriate in that kind of a setting. Okay. Because really, I mean, in that kind of a setting, um, well, there's a lot of ways you could think about this, but one one way that I would think about it is that my real audience, the person I'm really talking to, is not the person at that podium over there. Right. My real audience is the audience. Right? Yep. Those are the people I'm trying to win. Yep. And I need to tell them how absurd that was. For sure. Now, maybe after the debate, that lady, if she, you know, would would deign to be in your presence maybe you guys go out for a beverage after your debate and sure. you can sit down and say do you really think eating meat is <laughs> really okay can i get an order of chicken wings please yeah right you know? yeah <laughs> oh that's a good word uh yeah i appreciate that yeah because uh, like i was trying to share the gospel in boulder one time um with a neighbor and it was a really offhanded comment i just laughed at it and i think i insulted her and I didn't, I wasn't trying to, but she said, uh, you know, I think about God and I think about my dog. And I don't think it's an irony that dog is spelled similarly to God because dogs are like gods. And I just laughed because I was like, what in the world are we talking about? And, you know, part of me is like the whole like uh, winsome contextual mode of discourse is like, tell me more. Like that's my, what I'm hearing in the back of my mind is Chase, don't laugh. You need to get to know her heart. You need to understand what, and I'm like, like, yeah, okay, but also, like, it's crazy. It's crazy. Also, God is not like a dog. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And I feel I feel like I'm being a bad, I guess, I guess I'm just confessing, like, I felt like a bad pastor because a lot of my instincts, and I, I, I'm I not uh, a bastion of character or anything like that. I, I need the gospel every day. Uh, but my instincts, hopefully, as a man of character, as I aspire to be, or sometimes it's just to be like, this is ludicrous, and I'm going to highlight it publicly for people. Um, and so, anyways, one of the one of the things that was interesting um, because I was trying to follow you on Twitter, and then you just disappeared. Um, and so, I'd love to share with my audience what happened to you on Twitter, uh, and 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 the ongoing saga. I guess you're still not on it. Are you on Twitter right now? No, I am not on Twitter. Um, so this happened back in October. So I've had what, like one, two, three, four, four really blessed months of not being on Twitter. Um, I miss it for, I'll tell you why I miss it um, in, a, in a minute. But yeah, I, I got booted off of Twitter, which is kind of weird because I was not a flamethrower at all on Twitter. Right. Um, 
I would I would be accused of being you know the the David Frenchy kind of kind of pansy guy. Uh, <laughs> I'm not a flamethrower on Twitter, right? But Twitter um, was was uh, promoting a tweet about uh, Rachel Levine or Levine, who was that public health official that um, was made a four star admiral or something. And, you know, par for the course, I get that, except that they were they were lauding the fact that this was the first female four star um, admiral. And I took exception to that um, because Rachel Levine is actually a man. It's she's she's not female. And you are um, engaging in misogyny when you say that this man achieved something. Uh, is the first woman to do something, and it is utterly disrespectful to uh, actual women mm. um, to to take their accolades and take their prizes. So this is where feminism has gotten us, right? This is where feminism has gotten us is that is that men are taking all the awards. Wow. Okay, <laughs> it's crazy. So I simply said it. Rachel Levine is not um, is not a woman. She's a man, and. Uh, and I said that saying that she is and celebrating this is misogyny. And they said that um, they, they, they shut down my, or they, they suspended me from my account, mm -hmm. said that I had violated their rules. And so um, I appealed and said, tell me what rule I violated. Because I actually didn't violate any rules, by the way. There was okay. nothing in the rules that that violated. And their response was, um, your appeal is denied. Um, we have determined that you violated our rules, specifically our rules concerning literally blank. Yeah. If you would like to get your Twitter account back, here's what you, you can click this button and go through a process to get your Twitter account back by deleting your tweet. Yeah. They literally, Chase, could not tell me the rule. That I <laughs> So I wrote them emails and, you know, multiple emails and said, you still have not told me what rule I violated. Right. And uh, no response. Just, they, they, they will not engage with me at all. So when I go to the little thing to get my Twitter account back, um, it takes me to a page to delete my tweet. And it's you just click a button to delete tweet. Very simple. Very simple. However... Right next to that button is a very, very tiny, small print thing that says, by clicking this button, you acknowledge that you violated our Twitter rules and guidelines. <laughs> I, you know, look, I, I'm, I'm not, I would not begrudge anybody for just going, this is stupid, and click right. the button and move on and keep your Twitter account. But that disclaimer stuck in my claw like i i try to move my finger I, can't do it. I didn't violate your rules number one and number two i spoke the truth all right and you're supposed to be a social media platform that is open dialogue open all of that you got you, you know the things people say on twitter that they allow i mean yep. this is mind-boggling to me um but they 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 so I just couldn't do it. I couldn't bring myself to do it. So 
uh, I really miss Twitter for this reason. Twitter was an extremely helpful tool for me to keep up on current events in the news. And also as a clearinghouse, because I, the way I curated my feed, the people that I saw, I, I was always up on who wrote a great article where, right? Yep. It, it was just so helpful to me. And um, I've been really missing that. Um, I may at some point um, open another Twitter account um, and just curate a feed of people I follow just for that reason, because it was such a helpful thing. But if I did that, and I haven't decided to do that, if I did that, I would kind of make a commitment to myself that I wouldn't actually tweet. Ah, okay. You've been taught a lesson by, by the gods that just, you shouldn't just, use your voice. I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to... Um, for me to tweet, I would have to... Uh, um, I haven't figured it all out yet. I'm just working this through in my That's own... That's great my own conscience about, you know, um, I'm not going to submit to the Twitter gods and say that I was wrong because I wasn't. Yeah. And they haven't been able to show me that I am. Right. <laughs> so there's that. Um, is it okay for me to still uh, find a use for their platform in a way that doesn't violate the spirit of my banning? That's, uh, I don't know. You I don't know, man. <laughs> you just give me access to your account and I'll click that button for you so you can get back on. I'll relieve your conscience of your distress. <laughs> and then I'll apologize later for, for breaking your, your rule. Oh, yeah, I'll figure it out. I don't know. I haven't <laughs> found, I will say this. I have not found anything close to a replacement for, for the utility that Twitter actually gave me. So, yeah. Yeah. I, and I agree. I mean, like I've gotten on all the, try to, you know, whether it's parlor or Gitter or whatever the latest one is. And it's just, you know, it would take a lot for me to, to get you know into it and the people i want to follow aren't on there you know and for me i agree i mean i almost wonder how much of these platforms were like the internet itself was really useful for academics to exchange ideas because it's such a disembodied environment where you're just like i'm going to say this and then people react you know and like it's really good for academics to kind of poke and prod and share ideas but once the general public um gets on there it can be uh not as useful but for me i was finding all sorts of people whether it's like yourself or andrew sandler or other people that i was like well there are helpful voices out there there are clarifying voices out there not people only need, that people need to remember you curate your twitter feed that's right right so if your if your feed is filled with garbage this is kind of your fault right you you decide who you want to see that's right <laughs> And then I also got to, but I also got to see these people who were writing as if they're like these neutral players. Like um, they typically, you know, love the phrase gospel centered. And then they yeah. use the, the word gospel and basically lather it on whatever they prefer. Um, mm -hmm. And, and so I got to see what they actually thought about real world things. And I was like, wow, we disagree. Huh? That's interesting. And, and you think this about that too. I wonder, you know, your theology is upstream from that. So I wonder what a, what I've believed about your theology that informed that perspective. And so it just gave me better insight to kind of like get a, it's like a topographic idea map of uh, yeah. people's theology. Um, sometimes, sometimes people's theology is actually downstream. Right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's what we, right. Going all the way back to our first, our initial conversation is, man, people are complicated. Yes, you know? you're right. Sometimes, actually, I'm just a political liberal. <laughs> and uh 
And my, I'm, I'm going to make my theology fit that, right? Yep. So yep. there you get an example of theology being downstream from politics, right? So totally. it's complicated. It's very complicated. Well, Brian, this was such a helpful conversation. And, um, you know, hopefully for my listeners, uh, you know, however many there are, uh, we've gone longer than normal. You've lasted this far into the podcast, but I really hope the conversation has been beneficial. It's probably given you, uh, if not Brian, but people who are listening better insight into like the things I'm wrestling with personally as a Christian, as a pastor, as a theologian, as somebody who, who, um, who's not afraid to, you know, throw some flames sometimes. Um, and I wish Brian could be on Twitter so that he could, you know, call me out. Uh, and just let me know, hey, delete that. <laughs> start, a, start, a Twitter, start a Twitter campaign, free Brian. <laughs> free Brian. <Hashtag>. <laughs> That's great. Well, if, if anybody wanted to kind of keep up with you, um, you've got drbrianmatson.com. You've got um, christianculture.com. Where else can people find you to kind of keep up with what you're thinking and what you're doing? Yeah, the, the very uh, best thing to do is subscribe to my uh, Substack newsletter which is called the square inch. If you go to uh, just, just, yeah, just Google the square inch, Brian Matson, and you'll find my newsletter, subscribe to that. It comes out every Friday. As a matter of fact, I'm going to get off with you and I'm going to go write my newsletter. Um, so that's a weekly, weekly email. I have just launched a sister publication called the quarter inch. And the quarter inch is, is going to be more, a, more an occasional email, which is going to sort of be just sort of, short, pithy little commentaries on things like current events. Uh, my Friday newsletter, The Square Inch, tends to be more a singular essay on a particular topic. Um, but that's that's the best way for people to to um, keep in touch with me and, and hear what I have to say about things. That's great. And if somebody, you know, I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, you wrote a book on Bob Inc. that's available on the interwebs. Is that right? It is. You have to take out a mortgage on your house. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that was published by Brill, you know, one of the oldest academic publishers in the world. And they, um, for some reason, I, I don't know um, what the process is, but the paper they use is um, goes through some gold plating or something <laughs> like that, which makes them very, very expensive. I think you can find it. It's on Amazon. It's called Restored to Our Destiny. And uh, it's, I think, 147 bucks or something like that. It's worth oh, every penny, but I understand yeah. why you might not want to buy it. A very expensive doorstop, um, but yeah, I'll drop. It's actually, a, not, it's actually not a big book. It's 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 pretty tight. Very digestible. That's great. Well, if anybody's read my book, they know that even though it may be small, it could be very dense. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I'll put a link to both the Substack, but um, but it's been such a delight to talk with you, Brian. I know my listeners will benefit uh, greatly from your thoughts, your thinking, your writing. Um, so, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Chase. Great to be here. Enjoy it. All right. See you next time.